Almighty God, thank you, Father, for another day to serve you, to glorify your name. Thank you for your word, your inspired word that guides us, that is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Father, we pray that you will bless this study, that we will continue to learn much from the scripture. Father, we pray that you'll continue to encourage us and hold our hands, and even though we may be living in some very difficult and uncertain times, that you will help us always be thankful and mindful of our current blessings and how you, you're so good to us because you gave us your son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. God, continue to be with us. I pray, Father, for those who are discouraged, sick, shut in, who are grieving right now the loss of loved ones. I pray that you had a blessing be on those people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, believe it or not, but we are very soon going to be concluding our series of lessons entitled Jesus Walks. This is actually the 10th lesson in the series. After today, we'll have two more, and then that will be it. For the past couple of months, we have been considering some of the very places that Jesus traveled to and preached in, and that, I, and that I was able to see back in my 2015 trip to the land of Israel. So far in these classes, we've studied places like Bethlehem, the town in which Jesus was born, Nazareth, the town that he was raised in, Capernaum, the town that he lived in as an adult, Bethsaida, the town where he miraculously multiplied food, and Caesarea Philippi, the town where the apostles, particularly the apostle Peter, announced with certainty and confidence that Jesus is the very son of God. We have considered these towns and so many others where Jesus walked, in fact, beyond places where Jesus walked, in some of our classes, we've also studied other significant cities that are mentioned in the Bible. We've studied about Jericho, the town that Israel first conquered when crossing over the Jordan River. We have studied Caesarea Maritima, that is the city that Cornelius lived in. Cornelius was the first Gentile convert. In our last video, we studied about the Sorik Valley. That's the valley that was near where Samson was raised. And we also studied the, studied the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah is the place where David defeated the Philistine giant Goliath. In fact, speaking of the great King David in this particular video, I want to talk with you about another place that I was able to see back in 2015 that is heavily tied to David, and that is, that is En Gedi. I want to talk with you about En Gedi. And in this video, I also want to talk with you about Masada, and I want to talk with you some about the Dead Sea. En Gedi is tied to David. Masada... It's not mentioned in the Bible, but something very significant that is mentioned in the Bible took place at Masada 
and the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is another sea or body of water that is mentioned several times in the scriptures. I want to talk with you about Engedi, Masada, and the Dead Sea. And let's just begin with Engedi. Engedi. Engedi is mentioned several times in the scriptures. It's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. It is first mentioned in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 15 and verse number 62. In Joshua chapter 15 and verse number 62, we learn that after Israel took possession of Canaan, after they took possession of the promised land, and Gedi belonged to the territory of Judah. As you can see on the map, and Gedi is south of Jerusalem, south of the Mount of Olives and Bethlehem, it is right near the Dead Sea on the west side of the Jordan. And Gedi is actually a wilderness. It is a Judean wilderness, and it is probably most known for being the place where David, before he became king, took refuge from Saul. You got your Bible with you? Go in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 24. In 1 Samuel, the 24th chapter, here in the context, we are some years removed from the events that took place between David and Goliath in the Valley of Elah. After David defeated Goliath, David and Saul were friends. They started out very close. Saul had a lot of respect for David, but eventually Saul got jealous of David. He was jealous because of how popular he was becoming in the land of Israel, and he also viewed him as a threat because he knew how much the Lord favored him. And so there, became, there came numerous occasions when because of jealousy and paranoia, Saul tried to murder David. And David would have to run for his life. And one of the places he fled to was in Gedi. In 1 Samuel 24, in verse number 1, the Bible says that when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild oats. He came to the sheep folds of the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recess, recesses I'm sorry, of, of the cave. Now, notice how, according to what the text says, and Gedi was a place that David fled to to hide from Saul. In fact, when you continue to read this chapter, you see that once Saul got within the general area of David, where David was hiding, there came a time when Saul went into a cave to relieve himself, and David had an opportunity to kill him. In a cave in Engedi, David silently stole a piece of Saul's garment when he found him in a compromising position. David actually felt guilty about even doing that. He would not kill Saul, even though he had an opportunity to, because he said Saul was God's anointed. 
because of David's respect for Saul as God's anointed, even though Saul was his enemy, and because of David's respect for God and the fact that God chose Saul to be king, David would not kill him. Even though he could have, David would not take vengeance against his enemies. He would not kill Saul because he respected Saul as the Lord's anointed and he respected God. He respected the fact that he had no right to take the king's life. But it was in a cave in En Gedi where David hid from Saul and he had an opportunity to kill Saul when he found him in a very compromising position. Besides the multiple caves in which to hide, David probably also chose to hide in En Gedi because of the fresh water spring it provides. And I'm going to show you some pictures of that in just a moment. In addition to having a bunch of spots that David could have successfully hid from Saul, David also would have been able to survive in this wilderness because of the fresh water springs that were there. Both he and his men could have survived there for a long period of time. And so when you see the pictures, you'll see why David strategically picked En Gedi in which to hide from the king. Another thing I want to point out is not only is En Gedi significant in the book of, of Samuel, but it's also significant in the Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, we see that Amnon, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, these were all enemies of Israel, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, tried to invade Judah through En Gedi during the reign of Jehoshaphat. And so that's another significant time when En Gedi is mentioned in the Bible. And so let me just show you some pictures of what I was able to see when I went to En Gedi. En Gedi is a wilderness. We actually spent a couple of hours in En Gedi, and as you can see, it looks very similar to Arizona. It looks very similar to where we live here in Phoenix, like what you see on the west part of, of our country. Notice how En Gedi has a lot of hills. It has a lot of mountains. It has a lot of caves. It has a lot of places for a person to hide. It is a great place to play hide and seek. All these little holes here you see are, are caves, small caves. That would have been great places for David to hide from Saul. It is all of, all, all of the caves. All of the caves that are in En Gedi, when you see this, especially in person, then you really understand why David and his men would choose to flee from Saul here. Unless Saul has some informants, and he probably did, it would have been very hard for him to track David down in this area. David would have been able to hide successfully from Saul in En Gedi, while at the same time being able to gain access to fresh water. Uh, here is a fresh water spring in En Gedi. This is one of the places in which David would have been able to get water to, for himself and for his men. Again, this would have been a great place for David to be because of all the caves, of all the different places for him to hide, and at the same time being able to survive in this wilderness because of access to water. 
But in Gedi is significant because the Bible says this was the place where David found refuge. This was the place where David was successfully able to hide from Saul. This was the place where Saul almost was killed by David, but David refused to touch the Lord's anointed. These events took place in En Gedi. But after we went to En Gedi, a second place we also visited on this same day was Masada. Masada. Have you ever heard of Masada before? Again, Masada, as I said earlier, it's not mentioned in the Bible. It's not mentioned in the sacred text, but a very important event that took place according to the sacred text is tied to Masada. Now, as you see on the map here, Masada is just right to the south of Engedi. It's right, right by the Dead Sea. And so because of its location, we were able to visit both Engedi and Masada on the same day. The significant event that is tied to Masada is to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. You may have heard me speak a lot about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is an event that was prophesied about from the Old Testament prophets. It's an event that Jesus prophesied a lot about. Jesus talked a lot about the destruction of Jerusalem in his ministry. In fact, I did a whole series of lessons on Matthew 24 uh, a couple of months ago. You can view those online. I did a three-part series on Matthew 24. For much of Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. For much of Matthew 24, he doesn't talk about the signs that will precede his second coming in the end of the world. There are not going to be any signs when he personally returns. Instead, the signs that are in Matthew 24 were signs that would precede the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Jesus talks a lot about the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24. He also talks a lot about it in Mark chapter 13, and he talks a lot about it in Luke chapter 21. Now, Masada is connected to the events of 70 AD, and I want to show you that in this part of our study. First, as far as the geography goes, I think it's important that we understand that Masada was located between the eastern edge of the Judean desert and the western coast of the Dead Sea. Again, it's highlighted or circled there on your map. This incredible wilderness fortress rises nearly 1,500 feet above sea level. King Herod, and this is the Herod who is known in history as Herod the Great. This is the same Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was just a small child. Herod, King Herod, built a winter palace at Masada. This was a place where he would go and relax, and he would engage in sexual immorality. He would engage in orgies and all kinds of gross immoral things. Masada was intended by him, this, this marvelous structure that, that I'll show you pictures of this marvelous structure was intended by Herod to be kind of kind of a getaway for him. It was intended to be a fortress, a place where he could go for safety, 
when an enemy came against his, his kingdom, particularly if he felt the Romans were going to come against him, Masada would be a place where he would find refuge. It was both a fortress and a palace. Now, as far as its connection to the destruction of Jerusalem, here's the key thing I want you to understand about Masada. History tells us that nearly 1,000 Jews took refuge in Herod's, Herod's palace following the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That is a very important point. Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. In 70 AD, the Romans came in, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the priesthood, destroyed the, the Jewish genealogical records. And those Jews who were able to get out of the city went to Masada. Ironically, they went to the fortress of the man whom they hated, who was King Herod. They found refuge in Herod's winter palace. They lasted there for about three, maybe even four years. In 73 or 74 AD, the Romans, Romans led by Flavius Silva, or Salva, besieged the Jews' hideout in Masada. So that means that about three or four years after 70 AD, there were nearly a thousand Jews who found refuge in Masada. The way the Romans finally were able to get up there, and this was a tough task for them. It wasn't easy to get up to Masada. It was strategically built to, to be hard for an enemy to, to take down. So the way the Romans were able to finally figure this out and finally get up there is they built a siege ramp, which is still there to this day. I was able to see it. It's still there 2,000 years later. The Romans built a siege ramp to hurl stones, which, by the way, are also still there to this day. The stones that the Romans hurled at the rebellious Jews inside the fortress, they're still there to this day as well. The Romans were able to get to the top and conquer Masada because they built a siege ramp to hurl stones at the rebellious Jews inside the, for the fortress. Now, when the Jews realized that the Romans were going to finally make it to them, to keep from being killed and enslaved, the leader of the Jewish rebels, a man named Eleazar ben Yair, he convinced the 960 people in his care that it would be better for them to, to take their own lives. He said, it's better for us to kill ourselves, to, to commit suicide, because there's no way we're going to be able to stop the Romans. They're going to make their way here. They're near, they're near the top now, and it's better for us to go ahead and kill ourselves than to allow ourselves to be captured by them and tortured. And so once Flavius and his men entered the fortress, they were shocked at what they saw. They didn't find nearly a 1,000 Jews ready to be captured and ready to surrender. Instead, they found only a couple of women and a handful of children hidden in the cisterns. These people had survived the mass suicide and were able to recount what happened. And so that's the importance of Masada. Masada, the events of Masada really marked officially the end of the first Jewish-Roman war. The events of Masada are significant because those Jews who were able to survive 
when the Romans came into the city in 70 AD, they found refuge there for three or four years later. They all killed themselves because they knew the Romans. The Romans were going to take them into captivity and torture them. And so, let me just show you some pictures of what I saw at Masada. We went to Masada National Park. Now, this national park is one of the most popular tourist attractions in Israel today. Once we enter into the park, there's a small museum area with, with several artifacts that go back 2,000 years, that go back to ancient times. To get to the side of Masada, where Herod's winter palace is, you had, we had to take a trolley. We took a trolley to where Herod's palace remains, where the ruins of it remain. As you can see, Masada is located in the wilderness. It is in a, a desert area. This was strategically done by Herod. It is dry. It was hot. Again, it looks very much like places you find in, in Arizona. But out in this area, Herod built both a palace and a fortress. This is uh, a top view looking down at Basada. Only one way up, really. And, and, and if the Romans are going up the path that led up to Herod's fortress, the Jews could have easily just threw boulders down at them and stones at them. It would have made it very difficult, nearly impossible for them to come up the path. So again, this was very strategic. Herod was very brilliant in how he designed this winter palace. We took the stairs. We took the stairs up to up to the up to the fortress. Uh, we had to walk up a, a a long flight of stairs until we finally reached the top. But this is the place where a thousand Jews found refuge for three years. Once we got to the top, as you can see, the view there again is the wilderness. It's not far from the Dead Sea, and I'll show you a better picture of where the Dead Sea is, uh, where that is from the view of Masada. This is, us, this is us when we finally reached the top of Masada. We were all pretty tired because you got to take not only the trolley across, but there's a big flight of stairs to go up. Again, this is the top of Masada. This is where a thousand Jews found refuge for maybe four years, three or four years. Uh, what you see there goes back 2,000 years. These are some of the walls of the palace. Uh, as you see some of the designs on the walls, all of this was done by King Herod. There are some of the 2,000-year-old tile there uh, from Herod's winter palace. Uh, what you see there in the picture is the actual uh, siege ramp that was constructed by the Romans. It's still there 2,000 years later. This is how the Romans were finally able to make their way up to the fortress. This right here are some of the stones, some of the actual stones that the Romans would uh, hurl and throw at the Jews uh, using uh, from the ramp. Uh, these were there 2,000 years later. Now, again, when the Romans finally got to the top, you know, they were shocked by what they saw. Uh, they were anticipating maybe seeing 
Eleazar and in his group ready to surrender themselves, ready to finally throw in the towel. But when they got to the top of, of, this, of this palace, and again, we're sitting in the ruins of, of Herod's palace. When they got to the top, they found uh, almost a thousand people dead. In this video right here, when you look out there, that body of water you see, that's the Dead Sea. Notice how close the Dead Sea is to, to Masada. It is just a marvelous structure. And it really shows you some things about Herod. While Herod was a wicked man, while he is someone who tried to kill our Lord Jesus Christ, and he was a paranoid man who even, history says, killed members of his own family, killed his own children. He was a brilliant man. He's called Herod the Great because he was a brilliant builder. This is how Masada here, what you see here in this model, this is how Masada would have looked in the first century. But it is a significant place, and what occurred in 73 or 74 AD at Masada marked the end of the first Jewish-Roman War. Now, there's one more place I want to talk with you about, and then that's going to be our video. I just mentioned the Dead Sea and how you can see the Dead Sea from the top of Herod's fortress. Well, I want to share with you some things about the Dead Sea. We also visited the Dead Sea after we left Masada. The Dead Sea, as you probably are aware, is mentioned several times in the Bible. Uh, it's mentioned in Genesis 14, 3, 2 Kings 14, Joel chapter 2, in the Bible, it goes by many different names, like the Sea of Galilee goes by many different names. The Sea of Galilee is also called the Sea, the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, many different names the Sea of Galilee goes by. Well, that's the same way it is with the Dead Sea. In the Bible, the Dead Sea is called the Salt Sea. I'll tell you more about that in just a few minutes. It's called the Sea of Arabah, and it's also called the Eastern Sea. It is an intensely salty sea occupying the southern end of the Jordan Valley. I have a circle there on the map for you. Notice how it is the final stop for the Jordan River. The Jordan River dumps off. It, it ends at the Dead Sea. Now, here's one of the most fascinating things about the Dead Sea. Its content is approximately 29% salt. Think about that for just a moment. Almost 30% of the Dead Sea is salt. It is the lowest place on the Earth's surface. Almost 1,400 feet below sea level. And so you contrast that with a place like Jerusalem that goes 2,500 feet above sea level. And then you get to the Dead Sea and you're 1,400 feet below sea level. And when we did that, it really messed with me. If you got bad sinuses like I do, that will really mess with you. Going that high ele up elevation, going that low, it, it, is, it is something else. But you don't get any lower on, on the earth's surface than the Dead Sea. Another thing about the Dead Sea is it is dropping by over three feet a year. And a lot of that is due to a lack of rain. And because of how salty it is, because its content is 30% salt, then obviously nothing can live in the Dead Sea, which is why it's called the Dead Sea. It's the Dead Sea because nothing can live in that sea. Now, if you go to the Dead Sea today, and when we went, 
we 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 didn't realize, at least I didn't realize until we got there, that the Dead Sea has a public beach. This is a public beach at the Dead Sea. The lowest elevation on the earth. You get there and you got people in swimsuits and all kinds of things, and there are even some people who don't even have swimsuits on. They're completely nude at the Dead Sea. There's a part for, for that also. And I didn't want to be anywhere near that part especially. But it is a public beach, and we were able to get into the Dead Sea. And at, at first, when we got there, I didn't want to get into the Dead Sea. I don't like water. I don't like getting in water. And one of the reasons why I don't like getting in water is because I can't swim. Never learned to swim. Don't know how to swim. If somebody pushed me into a swimming pool, I probably would drown instantly. Don't know how to swim. So they, you know, I was like, everybody else can go in. I'm not going in. But everybody finally twisted my arm, and, and they made me get in. And here's why I, I kind of relaxed when I got in. You don't have to know how to swim to get into the Dead Sea. You know why? Because you just float. You just float. Uh, I didn't know how to swim, and I didn't need to know. I got in, and as you see my feet there, how muddy and just disgusting they look, that's all coming from the Dead Sea. I don't look like that. On a, my feet don't look like that on a daily basis, okay? The Dead Sea is just a filthy sea. Uh, it's full of salt. Don't shave. Don't have a razor touch your body before getting into the Dead Sea or you will burn up. It is salty. It's like getting in mortal oil. It's just, it's just disgusting. But you just float in it. No fish. No life in the Dead Sea. But once you get out, you immediately want to go to like the shower area that they have at the beach and immediately clean yourself up. And anything you put on when you get into the Dead Sea like, I'm a big Washington Redskins fan, so I got a Washington Redskins shirt on. I had to throw that shirt away. Any clothes you get in, into the Dead Sea in, they're destroyed. They're not going to be any good for anything anymore. But in addition to being a salty sea, the Dead Sea is also a very filthy sea. Now, that's what I wanted to share with you in this particular video. And before we close, let me just give you a couple of things as far as application goes from what we've studied. Two points of application. The first point of application is going to come from Engedi. If you have some time, I recommend you go back and you read 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24 is a very powerful account about compassion and mercy and grace, particularly towards your enemies. Remember, it was in Engedi where David had an opportunity to kill Saul. He had an opportunity to take Saul's life, but he refused to because he was a man who respected God and he respected Saul as God's anointed. Which, When you read 1 Samuel 24, you get a great idea of why David's a man after God's own heart. David had a heart of compassion, even compassion towards his enemies. Very different than Saul. And just like David had compassion towards his enemies throughout the New Testament, particularly in Romans 12, we learn that God wants us to have the same kind of attitude. We need to have compassion towards all people, even our enemies. In fact, if you think about it, there was a time when we all were enemies of God because we've sinned against him, and yet God demonstrated compassion, mercy, and grace towards us 
when he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And so from Engedi, in 1 Samuel 24, you learn a great lesson about compassion. And then from Masada, from Masada, even though Masada is not mentioned in the Bible, that event tells us a lot about the faithfulness of God. Remember, numerous times in the scriptures, Jesus promised that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. Jesus promised that one day not one stone of the temple will be left upon another. He promised that God was going to wipe out the Jewish nation because they rejected him. The events of Masada show us that God is faithful to his promises. I mean, even those Jews who were able to escape Jerusalem's destruction, they couldn't escape the judgment of God. Eventually, even God was able to use the Romans to bring judgment on them at Masada. And so from Engedi, we learn about God's compassion. And from Masada, we learn about God's faithfulness. We learn that when God promises something, whether it's blessing or cursing, he's always faithful to do what he has said. Now, I hope those things will bless you and help you as you continue to study the Bible. Particularly, I hope they will help you just understand some background things to some of the information we have in the Bible, and they will make your Bible study even richer and fuller. Thank you for studying with me. I look forward to our next study. And in that study, we're going to talk about the most important city that is mentioned in the Scripture.